0: Hello, interior designers and design lovers. Welcome back to the Daniel House Book Club. I'm your host, Peter Spalding, the Chief Creative Officer at Daniel House Club, and I'm here to continue on our journey through the eight books every interiors lover should have read according to Architectural Digest. We've now covered Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman's The Decoration of Houses, Elsie DeWolf's The House in Good Taste, and Joseph Albers' Interaction of Color. Now we embark on 1,000 chairs. Before we jump in, let me first say that if I were creating Architectural Digest's list, I think I would have swapped this book out for another one titled, Now I Sit Me Down, From Klyzmos to the Plastic Chair, by one of my favorite architectural historians, Vitold Rybczynski. And the reason I'd make this swap is that while 1,000 Chairs provides a nearly encyclopedic coverage of late 19th and 20th century chairs, it virtually ignores the thousands of years of chair design that occurred before these centuries. So I guess I have a little beef with 1,000 Chairs. Its brilliant authors explain this negation of the past as a conscious choice to explore chairs created right at or after the time chair production moved out of the realm of the craftsman and into that of industrial manufacture. Fair enough, but to some extent this assumes the method of production of a chair is as important as the purpose it serves, which of course is to hold the human body when it assumes a seated position. Or is it? One theme that both of these books share is the very important knowledge that the purpose of a chair is so much greater than just sitting. Chairs convey all kinds of things. They convey what's important to the individual who owns and sits in them and what mattered to the society that produced them. In a great lecture, uh, Rubchinski gave to the students of the New York School of Interior Design in 2016. He compared a photograph of President Kennedy sitting in a rocking chair in the Oval Office with one of President Trump as perhaps the only American president, president to ever appear seated in a gilded Louis XV chair. The earlier president brought in rockers because a doctor told him it may help with his chronic back pain, but it conveyed a comfortable informality the country has long embraced the later president's choice of chair was likely more conscious and certainly more alien to the American psyche. This is one of the most salient contemporary examples I can think of to persuade even the densest of observers that chairs are for much more than just sitting. In the same Lecture, Rybczynski reminds us that the famous mid-century designer Charles Eames, whose heavily documented innovations in bent wood and molded plastic represent a very important contribution to the trajectory of chair design nonetheless said you should only innovate as a last resort and so even though the authors of 1000 chairs have provided a perfectly logical reason to exempt several thousand years of design in doing so I believe they have undermined the importance of knowing the past in favor of worshiping innovation as maybe we all tend to do today While there are 1,000 innovative chairs to study here, to appreciate them, I think it's necessary to go back and look at a few of the blockbuster chairs that came before. The premise of 1,000 chairs is that the primary purpose of a chair is to make connections. Connections with the body, connections with materials used to make the chair, connections with emotions of an individual, and perhaps with the ideas of a society. This is why we need to look at blockbusters, even if As refined artists, we may not love the mainstream. Things tend to become mainstream because they make the most connections with the biggest audience. Most of the thousand chairs represent work of the avant-garde, which is fine because this is where important artistic efforts usually begin and are distilled until they either resonate very, very strongly or become so diluted as to become completely unimportant. So, the first blockbuster chair we have is the Klysmos chair from ancient Greece. It's truly an amazing chair and considered one of the most elegant ever designed. It has a deeply curved wooden backrest and all four legs splay away from the body of the chair. In ancient times, the seat was usually supported by leather strapping and it's now generally upholstered. After being lost as Greece declined, it enjoyed several revivals once Greece became accessible to the West again, first in France and then in Britain and the United States. The Klysmos has been the impetus for the chair designs of numerous architects from the early American architect Benjamin Latrobe, who designed the U.S. Capitol building as well as a Klyzmos chair for the White House, all the way to the postmodern architect Michael Graves, who designed one to be sold at J.C. Penney for $60 in 2012. Chronologically, the next blockbuster chair worth mentioning is the wingback chair, which began to appear in England in the 1600s. You all know them well. Everyone's parents or grandparents seem to have had one or two. Often believed to be developed to keep heat in and to be placed near a fire, it is maybe more likely these chairs were constructed with wings to support a person's head as they dozed off to sleep as before they appeared in common areas, like living rooms, they were found in sleeping rooms. Now they are safely ensconced as part of the canon of American patrician taste, and appear wherever what my realtor friend calls aristocratic decay is to be found. What can be said of both the blockbuster chairs I've mentioned so far, is that the very best versions of them are extremely comfortable though many are really beautiful their beauty is the result of being created with attention to their purpose the chlysmus cradles your back and the wingback chair your head now we move to the berger first developed during the french regency period it's the earliest ancestor of our modern sense of comfort it is a low wooden frame chair whose interior is completely upholstered it has a loose tailored but plump seat cushion. In contrast to the wing chair, the berger is low-backed, allowing better conversation and mobility. It is still possible to specify an 18th century berger and achieve a level of comfort rivaling any familiar club chair. These are beautifully designed sumptuous pieces created for lounging, and they were designed by and for the ladies of the French court, or at least with the needs of the ladies of the French court in mind. Now I come to my favorite, the Windsor chair. Never as subtly beautiful as the Klismos, the Windsor still relies on truly exemplary craftsmanship. Its name is most likely derived from the town which served as a trade center for its production and distribution. Typically, the creation of a Windsor chair relied on three separate parties. There was the person who turned the legs, the back band, and the back spindles on a lathe the benchman who made the seat, and the framer who put all the pieces together. Like the klyzmos, the berger, and the wingback, it has been variously created all over the place, and it is often possible to discern its region of origin by the style of its pieces or the way they are put together. Also like the klyzmos, its deeply curved wooden back cradles the human body, making long periods of sitting more tolerable. The seat of a windsor is usually more sculpted than eclismos to cradle our glutes, too. Finally, we should mention President Kennedy's favorite, the rocking chair. In case you're curious, JFK's preferred model was manufactured by the p p Chair Company of North Carolina beginning in the 1920s. It has simple lines with steam-bent back rails allowing woven rattan back and seats to cradle the body comfortably. Its wide arms are set low loose thin cushions can be tied onto the frame for extra padding and it can still be purchased from p p for 549 dollars for me this is a little bit less of a blockbuster than the others we've looked at it's a chair whose origin is likely for the fairly specific reason of nursing or lulling a child to sleep the first examples began appearing in england and america around 1710 The rocking cradle predates the chair by centuries, and so it seems logical that the rockers were simply applied to the chairs with the pre-existing knowledge that this motion had a calming effect. Where the other chairs were designed to serve everybody who could afford them, the rocker didn't debut as such. Still, even as I think about what to say about a rocking chair, its meaning seems more pungent than that of the others. First, like your mouth begins watering when you smell something cooking that you know will be delicious. My eyes wander outside on this gloomy February day, and my mind tells me how great it would be to be relaxing in a rocking chair on some big front porch, probably in Virginia, looking out over a verdant green lawn shaded by huge deciduous trees. As I try to refocus on my task, I'm reminded of the ugly Victorian rocker my mom had in her bedroom. Even though rockers made her sick, it had been her grandmother's, and so it was special to her. This flash of memory brings me to what I really want to say about rocking chairs. Unlike the other chairs, it's hard to plunk one of these down into a room and not have it reek of another time. I think that's why we so well remember Kennedy sitting in a rocking chair in the White House. It told us all, of a, in a very visual way, about a time when we imagine our country was simple and easy, whether that was his intention or not. The chair has a lot of cultural connection points, at least here in the United States, even in 2022. I wonder if our collective origin story were a little different, or if we were chatting 200 years ago, if one of the other chairs would still be as intoxicating as this one. And I also wonder if its salience will continue for another generation, or if it's beginning to fall away a little bit. Apart from their method of production, these blockbuster chairs differ from the 1,000 chairs we're about to see in our book, in that they are more like jazz standards than top 40 singles. The former is a song that might be performed variously by hundreds of different artists and still fall under the same title. The latter is by a single artist or group, and any subsequent performances by other artists would be called a cover. Going to see a cover band is not the same as seeing the real thing. You pay a little less, and usually the quality is not quite the same as the OG. There are thousands of Windsor chairs by hundreds of different shops, and they are all authentic. But an Eames chair that is not produced by Eames is a knockoff even even if it looks exactly the same it will never garner the same respect and its owner will not recoup their investment as its owner would have if it was a true eames this is an important distinction because the 1000 chairs are difficult to detach from the personalities that created them the chairs i've mentioned already are perhaps a bit hard to detach from the epochs in which they were created but the duration of the first runs can be counted in centuries rather than, say, a half decade. A run of a 100 years indicates a lot of people tested it out, lived with it, and deemed it workable for their lives or not. Forgotten in less than a decade, in some cases, one wonders if the 1,000 chairs had been designed by lesser names, whether they'd have been remembered at all, much less revered. Even though many sought to achieve lofty goals in the world of ergonomics and aesthetics, a sizable number of the 1,000 fall short of being identified in this way by the general public, as the designs I've already mentioned did. Many have become icons, yes, but staples in the home? I'm not so sure. So as we go forth and study, we're going to examine the lives of the people who created these cult chairs and then, hopefully, go out and sit wherever we can find an example to determine for ourselves whether each one was as successful at making connections as our authors claimed. Becoming nearly ubiquitous is not the only measure of success by a long shot. But it should be considered as we try to decipher the reality of proclaimed connections because ubiquitousness implies that at least on one level, very often price, an object has connected extremely well. I want to start with the only one of the 1000 chairs that I think we can truly call ubiquitous. That's the Tonet number 14 chair. If it sounds unfamiliar, then you probably know it as the bistro chair. The ToeNet No. 14 chair is said by some to be the world's first mass-produced piece of furniture. Always a difficult claim to prove or disprove, we can at least identify it as one of its most successful. Released in 1859, 50 million bistro chairs had already been sold by 1930. Obviously, it continues to sell well. The chair is constructed of six pieces of wood that are steam-bent and can be assembled by anyone with ten screws and two nuts. The design is public domain, and in 1961, Ikea made a plastic version. I have four of these around my dining table, and I love them. Why did this chair connect so well? Was it that 36 of them could be flat-packed into one cubic meter and shipped anywhere in the world? Probably, but even today a restaurateur wants to select a chair that says, come in, sit down, enjoy the ambiance. So, it must have been well-designed, too. Many of you may know that the famous 20th century architect Le Corbusier loved this chair, saying, never was a better and more elegant design, a more precisely crafted and practical item ever created. And yet, when he used the chairs, along with the armed version, Tonette No. 209, in his pavilion at the International Exhibition of Modern Decorative and Industrial Arts in Paris in 1925, the organizers found the whole pavilion so ugly they had a fence built around it, and Le Corbusier had to petition for it to be removed. The undecorated structure and its mass-produced contents stood in stark contrast to the truly luxurious Art Deco neighboring pavilions and their furnishings. In the consumer's mind, the Tonette number 14 hadn't made its way into their living room yet. Le Corbusier wanted to strip away all their beloved decoration and replace the handmade with the mass produced, and they really were not quite ready. Clearly, though, the masses had understood Tonet's chair as beautiful enough for the bistro. More important than his famous chair, Michael Tonet gave the world steam-bent wood. Born in 1796 and apprenticed to a carpenter by in his youth, by the age of 23, he set up his own cabinet-making shop. By the 1830s, Tonet was trying to build furniture out of thin strips of bent wood glued together. Using hot steam, he was finally able to create very strong, lightweight frames that allowed for production of gracefully curved pieces that had not been possible before. Having tried to patent his new technology for several years, by the 1840s, he was in financial trouble. He sold his shop and moved to Vienna with his five sons and six daughters, way too many, um, where members of the royal or imperial court had expressed interest in his work. At the end of the decade, Tonet was able to open a new shop with his sons. They began exhibiting their steam bent designs, including a rocking chair you've surely seen, in major European cities throughout the 1850s. Tonnet was an old man when the number 14 chair finally hit the market in 1859, and even older when it was awarded a gold medal at the Paris World's Fair in 1867. By the time of his death in 1871, Tonnet and his sons had seven manufacturing facilities and were shipping chairs around the globe. One of their original factories continues to be among Gabruder Tonnet's production facilities today, and is recognized as the oldest continuously operated factory of its kind. What I love about Tonette's story is that it's one of lifelong trial and error. The number 14 chair didn't just appear out of thin air, it was the final product of a lifelong master. I've gone into Tonette's chair fairly deeply because it predates most of the 1,000 chairs you'll really recognize by more than 40 years. When Le Corbusier, the deity of modern and contemporary architecture schools everywhere, chose to furnish his 1925 Paris pavilion with tonette chairs, whether he knew it or not, he dared 100 years of design students to create a better one, and they've been trying ever since. Of course, students of the Bauhaus were already deeply focused on this mission. Marcel Breuer was one of the youngest students of the revolutionary German design school, and his Wassily chair represents the earliest of the designs that have be- become part of the canon of modern um, chairs available from contemporary retailers like Design Within Reach. It is with Breuer's pioneering chair in chrome-plated tubular steel, leather, and cane that will begin next week. So before I go, though, I do have a few questions that I'd like to pose, and they're these. Why has the design of a chair been assigned to the architect? Couldn't an interior designer add some insight? Why are so few of these chairs upholstered? Is upholstery just an old craft incapable of being brought into contemporary production methods? Do the designs of upholstered chairs have less points of connection with current day? I have a hard time understanding that when upholstery as we know it is relatively a modern invention when compared with wood and metal construction methods which dominate this book. Is it perhaps that fabric and springs and fill are not the materials with which buildings are built, and so they're not interesting for the architect to study? If so, has the advancement of really comfortable, aesthetically considered chairs lagged and allowed too much room for the consumer to demand barca loungers and school bus-sized sectionals that dominate interiors everywhere? Put another way, by appealing to the very few, has the celebration of these chairs meant a decline in the quality of interiors for the millions of people with whom they do not connect? Obviously, these aren't questions to answer, just to consider. Um, if, by chance, you have not heard enough of my voice, and perhaps you'd like to hear some more along with the voice of our CEO and my brother, Alexander Spaulding, uh, be sure to tune in to Kimberly Seldon's Business of Design podcast on March 1st, when we'll be interviewed about the inner workings and benefits to designers of Daniel House Club. I look forward to talking about the Vasily chair with you guys next week. I'll see you then.